I want to begin by reading uh, just two verses from the Gospel of Mark as it opens up to provoke a question for us to think about as the leading question for the week, uh, for this session anyway, and that is from Mark 1, 14 to 15. This is Mark uh, opening up his gospel after he has sketched a little bit about John the Baptist, about what uh, Jesus preached and what Jesus' message was. Mark 1, 14 reads, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into the Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God. And here are his sort of three-point sermon. The time has come. This is the story of Israel. It's coming to completion now in Jesus. So all of history is, is converging on this one moment. The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news or the gospel. So three things. Time has been fulfilled. History is being completed. The kingdom has come near and repent and believe in the gospel. So the response to the message of the kingdom of God is a response of repentance. I think it would be fair to say, it has to be fair to say, because this is what I've believed most of my life. I don't want to be found out to be wrong now. That Jesus thought with the expression kingdom of God. This was the way he thought. Uh, It is fair to say that Paul did not think with that expression. He thought with terms of like church and salvation and justification. But Jesus thought with the term kingdom. The question is, what does kingdom mean? What would kingdom have meant in the first century when Jesus used this for the Galileans? But let's back up with this, this observation. If kingdom is what Jesus thought was important for him to think with, it is really important for us to know what he meant by that. If Jesus is our Lord, we want to learn to think the way he thinks. But lots of people, I'm a seminary professor, and, and we like to ask questions about theology and put people in corners as much as possible. We we sort of like this world. I frequently ask people what the word kingdom means, and I am absolutely astounded by how few Christians can define the kingdom as it is defined in the Bible. Now, I don't find that with justification or salvation or reconciliation. These terms are usually pretty well defined by Christian people, but kingdom just seems to be this mysterious term that Jesus used, uh, and, and we sort of fill it in with what we think it means. And we're not always thinking very uh, uh, clearly. I'll give you an example of this. I was speaking at a conference uh, of, for pastors when a very well-known pastor... I'm going to trip in here with these wires. Was it just the musicians who are always in the way, is that right? The, um, I finished talking, and this pastor wants to pull me by the side, and he pulls me into a hallway. 
And uh, I won't use his exact language. Gavin used a very clever expression last night that I can't repeat. Uh, it was too clever for me to remember. But, but he said something like this. Everybody's talking about the kingdom, but what in the world does kingdom mean? And he used a substitution for the word world. It wasn't as, it was more Lutheran than I expected for him to be using. And then he said to me, all the skinny jeans guys on my staff use this word kingdom. And he said, it sounds to me like they mean social justice. But he said, one of them said to me, what would you know? You wear pleated pants. So I'd like to begin by talking about a skinny jeans kingdom theory and then a pleated pants kingdom theory. Now, I'm not wearing skinny jeans. Sixty-year-olds who wear skinny jeans should be banned. That's just my opinion. I suppose there are people that it's appropriate for, but... Everybody likes this word kingdom. Everybody claims it. They don't like the word church. They like the word kingdom. And so there has developed a, a sort of theory about what the word kingdom means, and I have called it skinny jeans kingdom theory. And here's the basic definition. And it's, it's characteristic of this young generation, but it is not simply for the young people, because I've heard it on uh, from people who are very well-known theologians with initials like Tom Wright, <laughs> who gladly does not wear skinny jeans. But my definition of a skinny jeans kingdom theory is this. When, when good people do good things in the public sector for the common good, they are doing kingdom work. I'll repeat that. When good people do good things in the public sector for the common good, they are doing kingdom work. So this is, I would say, if you pay attention to how people are using this in the Western world, how they're using the word kingdom, I think this is the most common usage of the term today. And, and I'm willing to say that the Bible never uses the word kingdom this way. And I'm, I'm, I'll go to the mat on this one, uh, because I don't think it even pro- approaches this, this sense. But it is the most common usage of the term, is when good people do good things in the public sector for the common good, they are doing kingdom work, because after all, it's good things, and God wants us to do good things, and God is the king, so therefore this is kingdom work. I had a public conversation with the aforementioned N.T. Wright one time where I presented a paper on the kingdom of God and he responded to me. And in a footnote I had written in my paper, which I gave to Tom, uh, I I wrote, Did Gandhi do kingdom work? Mahatmas Gandhi from India. Well, this was prefaced in my footnote, note to self. Well, Tom decided to make this a featured part of his response, and so I was both irritated and delighted that he had declared his colors, because he said he thought Gandhi did kingdom work. And I said, there is no way that Gandhi did kingdom work, 
Gandhi was not a part of the kingdom of God. And Gandhi would say that he was not a part of the kingdom of God. So we had this long conversation, and it's very difficult to argue with the Bishop of Durham. And you never win. I thought I won, but everybody else thought he won. He has that accent, you know. And he was in the United States in Chicago, regaling people with his brilliance. And, and I love Tom, and I think he's done great work for people in the church today, especially about Jesus and his presentation of Jesus. But the question, I think, is a fair question. Did Gandhi do kingdom work? Certainly, in many ways, Mahatma Gandhi uh, did good things in the public sector for the common good. And we like what he accomplished in India. But is that kingdom work? I would contend that that is exactly the answer of the skinny jeans kingdom crowd. They would say, Gandhi did kingdom work. And so in, in putting water in wells in Africa in feeding the poor in India, in uh, doing compassionate works in Ireland. People are doing kingdom work no matter who they are. I think the question that we would ask as Christians, and I ask as a Protestant professor, I want to know what the Bible teaches about this topic. I want to know what the Bible says about kingdom of God. When Jesus said the kingdom of God has drawn near, was he saying it's now time for you to start doing good for the public sector and make Rome a better empire? Hardly. Jesus wasn't concerned like that with the Roman Empire. You can, you can see his words are not terribly positive about Rome. Uh, he would rather that they disappear than that they, that they make him better. Well, Alongside the skinny jeans kingdom theory, which again is when good people do good things for the, uh, in the public sector for the common good, um, this pastor told me he had a pleated pants theory of the kingdom of God. And I suppose you all know what pleated pants are. It's sort of the staid, middle age, common, comfortable uh, attire. And uh, I, I, I use this for what I would say is a a pretty common definition among pastors, evangelical Christians, and has some biblical support for it. And I I would say that skinny jeans people draw upon some deep themes in the Bible about justice and peace and reconciliation and compassion. They draw on those themes. The pleated pants draw on another theme. For them, the kingdom of God is largely the dynamic of God's saving activity. When God saves, and it's used in three different ways by evangelical Christians. In one way, it is used by charismatics for whenever there's a healing incident. The kingdom of God has broken in to someone's life. You may have heard this. The vineyard movement continually uses the word kingdom this way. And I've had conversations with Todd Hunter in the United States about the meaning of the word kingdom in the vineyard movement. And, and he would say this is largely what it means. It is referring to the sudden act of God in history to deliver, to rescue, to heal, and to save a person from their physical illnesses and diseases. And that is kingdom work. And they often use the word kingdom that way. 
Among the less charismatic and those who are a little bit more nervous about healing and anointing, uh, there is another evangelical version of kingdom salvation, and that is to connect it to personal salvation. So that when someone believes in Jesus, who has resisted Jesus, as I told the story Saturday night about Lauren Winner, when she uh, came to faith, some evangelicals would say the kingdom of God broke into her life and saved her from sin and evil and brought her into the kingship and lordship of God. And that's the kingdom of God. And I think you could find instances of that in the New Testament, but you have to be very clever to find them. I think it's fair to talk like that, but the question again is, what did Jesus mean by this? Well, among the pleated pants, there are some very important people who think that kingdom also is the redemptive activity of God in healing our world. But it's the act of God breaking into a neighborhood and perhaps ending poverty or racism or unreconciled relationships. So at this moment, the pleated pants people begin to hold hands with the skinny jeans people, and now we have a juggernaut of agreement. And that, I think, is where the church, many people in the evangelical world are today on the meaning of the word kingdom. The question is, is that what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God has drawn near? Did Jesus mean, did Jesus reduce it, I think is a fair way of saying it, to the dynamic of God breaking in to heal and to save? So this is the, these, this is the problem that I'd like to take a look at today and, uh, and this week. And we have outlined five talks about the kingdom in the uh, app or whatever you have. Google, is Google okay? What's wrong with Google? I, didn't, I thought Google was fine. Okay, it's, it's Google. Okay. <laughs> but um, I want to I wanna create enough space that some days may overlap. We may not finish one day or we may get a little bit ahead another day because these topics are major topics on kingdom. And depending on how people respond, we may have to uh, back up and expand some answers or discussions from the previous day. But before we start for the five, uh, for the five days, I want to outline how Jesus uses the word kingdom and how the Bible uses the word kingdom. In the Jesus way, if we want to get into the Jesus way, we want to learn to think like Jesus. We want to learn to talk like Jesus. We want his vision to fill our vision so much that we are expanding Jesus' vision and not our own agenda. And I think that we can break the idea of kingdom into five important elements. Before we get there, I'm going to give a very brief definition. And this is right. It can't be wrong. I'm talking like an American now. You know, we have answers. If I were Irish, I would soften that a little bit. I've heard about this. I heard it called the tall poppy syndrome. I'd never heard of this, but you, no one get too tall. We've got to snip them off. Snip me off when we leave, all right? Five themes, but the definition is this. A kingdom 
is when a people are governed by a king. Seems pretty clever, doesn't it? The skinny jeans people, that does not, is not what kingdom means. It's not about a people being governed by a king. It's about people doing ethical things in the world. So it's about an ethic. All right? And the pleated pants people don't emphasize people enough. They emphasize it's when a king, a people is governed. They emphasize this word govern in a redemptive way. And I think they touch on something very important in the, the, words, uh, the word about kingdom in the Bible. So a kingdom is when a people is governed by a king. An empire is when a people is governed by an emperor, except in, in the British Empire, of course. All right? I won't go there, but I mean, I don't like the word empire for British. They didn't have an emperor. Uh, so it doesn't work linguistically, but that's the way it, that's the way it was. And... A republic is a people governed by people uh, with a representative head. So a kingdom is when a people is governed by a king. And for there to be a kingdom, there has to be five elements. You can't have a kingdom without these five elements. The first one is, to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. In the pages of the Bible, there are three senses of a king. God is king over all the earth. This is only, the word kingdom is only used this way one time in the entire Bible in a metaphorical expression in Psalms. But there is, God is the king. And then Israel has kings like David. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is the king. And in the new heavens and new earth, in new creation, Jesus is the king. So we have, we have three senses of king. God is king, Israel's kings are kings, and Jesus is the king. But you can't have a kingdom without a king. All right? There are a lot of kings in the internet world that have no one following them, uh, but they think they're kings. But in the Bible, you have to have a king. The second is that you have to have a rule. For there to be a kingdom, a king must rule. A king who doesn't have a people is a mirage. It's a sham. But in the pages of the Bible, this God of ours rules. But this God rules in two ways, and this is so important for understanding the kingdom idea in the Bible. Our God rules by governing and by redeeming. So the redemptive rule of God is how God rules in the world. He not only is over as the Lord, our God redeems. So the fundamental way Israel's God becomes the king is by rescuing Israel from the Egyptian bondage through the exodus and then leading them into the land. And in the New Testament, Jesus rules by saving people from their sins on the cross and resurrection. So for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king who rules. Third, there must be a people 
And this is largely ignored in most discussions about the kingdom in the world today. And so on Wednesday, we will focus on this intensively. But in the Bible, the people of the kingdom is Israel, which is expanded to include Gentiles in the New Testament and is called the church. And I'll, I'll give you my line. And you may not all agree with me, uh, but you're risking jeopardy on disagreeing with me on this. That's American. All right. There is no kingdom outside the church. Okay? So when people can do kingdom work apart from the church, we have something going on that is very unusual for the Bible. In fact, counter to what the Bible says. Because there must be a people for there to be a kingdom. And the people of the kingdom are those who are under the lordship of Jesus, who have been redeemed by Jesus, and only they are a part of the kingdom. Gandhi cannot do kingdom work because Gandhi is not under the redemptive rule of Jesus, or he was not. Fourth, there is a law. For there to be a kingdom, there is a king who rules over a people and gives them a law by which they can live. Of course, this is very clear in the pages of the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's the Torah of Moses, the law. In the New Testament, it morphs in two ways. It's the teachings of Jesus. We like to focus it all on the Sermon on the Mount because this is where it's crystallized, sort of Moses 2.0. And then under the Apostle Paul, the ethical life becomes learning to live in the Spirit, whereby they do everything the law says and more. So we'll look at the idea of a law for the people of God. You can't have a, a kingdom if the king is ruling over a people, but they don't follow the king's will. That's no longer a kingdom. That's called rebellion and sedition and apostasy in New Testament categories. And this is what happens to Israel in the Old Testament time and time again. Israel refuses to live by God's covenant will. And so they are exiled as punishment because they are no longer following what God wants for the people. Finally, there is, a, uh, there is space or land. So for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king who rules over a people by giving them a law, and he does so in a physical space. The Old Testament, as you know, is dominated by the idea of land, ha'aretz in Hebrew. This land promise is absolutely critical to the Old Testament. So that the temple is an expression of the land. If God is dwelling in the temple, it's because the land is flourishing. And when God vacates the temple, the land no longer, it dries up. So the land becomes very important. In the New Testament, the land promise is both present and absent and quiet. And there's not enough about it. So there's a lot of speculation. I believe that in the New Testament, the land promise 
uh, is fulfilled first in Jesus, who becomes the temple of Israel. Then, because he is indwelling his people, the church becomes the temple. You are the temple of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then, therefore, because Jesus is a mobile temple, he walks around Israel, not just staying in Jerusalem. And because the church becomes a mobile temple, I believe that the land promise is fulfilled wherever the people of God occupy space in this world. So not just church buildings, but church buildings are an expression of the land promise. Families who are dedicated to Christ and occupy space are a part of the land promise. Well, we'll talk about that later as well. So here are the five themes of the kingdom of God. All five must be, must be present for us to talk about the kingdom. And that is, there is a king. There is a king who rules. He rules over a people who follow his law and who dwell in a space. All right? I believe that these five themes are consistently taught throughout the pages of the Bible, that we need all five to be biblical in our understanding of kingdom. And I believe that skinny jeans kingdom and pleated pants kingdom theories have both reduced the kingdom and as a result are losing some of the breadth of the kingdom vision of the Bible. The skinny jeans people emphasize the ethic of justice. The pleated pants people tend to emphasize the redemptive rule of God. But we need all five. So with that introduction... And plenty of questions for you, uh, and we'll have time on Friday, I think, to interrogate me about these, about these ideas. Is that right? Is it Friday? Uh, I would like to look at now today uh, to focus on God as king and what kind of king rules in the kingdom of God that Jesus teaches. We will have to be fairly uh, sketchy in our uh, in, in what we say here, but uh, we'll get the big ideas, and maybe I can get uh, our brother to talk about one of my books. I brought a, uh, a copy of it. It's called Kingdom Conspiracy. I promise you it will put you to sleep, but it's a good book, all right? It's, uh, it's a definition and an exposition of what, the, what Jesus and what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God. I'd like to make two very important points about the king and then illustrate this by looking at the, at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. The first is this. The God of, of the Bible, who is the king, is a king of covenant love. Is a king of covenant love. For 17 years, I taught college students at North Park University I'm now teaching seminary students at Northern Seminary. The two schools are not connected. Uh, one was in the city of Chicago. One is in the suburbs. But when I taught uh, the last five or six years of my years with, at North Park teaching college students, I wanted to teach a course on women in ministry. I have, I'd have about 30 or 35 students in each class 30 or 35 of them already believed that women should be fully endorsed and ordained in ministry, and there was absolutely no debates in class. So it wasn't even fun. Because I want to create friction in class. 
or the French frison. Uh, you want to you create some turbulence to get ideas going and get some disorientation. So uh, I decided that the last third of the class would be on love and relationships between males and females. And this, was a, this became a really interesting topic because about 85 to 90 percent of my students were females who had strong ideas about relationships and what love was. So we had amazing conversations for five years in my classes. And one of the things I wanted them to do was define love. Now, some years prior to that, I had written a book called The Jesus Creed, Loving God and Loving Others, in which I did not define love because I wasn't completely happy with the way people were using the, uh, the word love, uh, and I didn't want to get hung up on a definition that people disagreed with. So Jesus said that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But what does love mean? So when I worked in this class, I decided I would read the whole Bible trying to define the word love. And I would like to share with you the result of that work. Uh, I think love can be broken into four parts. And I think when you understand this as at least pointing us in the right direction of what love is in the Bible, I believe that you will say loving others is the biggest challenge of life. You know, to, to ape the words of C.S. Lewis, love is such a great idea until you have someone to love. He said that about forgiveness. Forgiveness is such a lovely idea, he said, until you have something to forgive. Love is that way, until you have my neighbor, you know. Love was a great idea until I moved into this neighborhood, and now I have a bunch of people I don't like and they don't like me. That's when it gets difficult. So what is love? The first thing you have to learn about love is don't go to an English, an American, or an Irish dictionary. Because they're going to define how love is used in our world as deep affection or emotional bonding with people. And that's fine so far as it goes, but the Bible's idea of love is bigger than that, deeper than that, wider than that, and therefore far more radical and more uncomfortable for us. Love in the Bible can be broken into four parts. The first is this. Love is a rugged commitment to someone. A rugged commitment. Rugged commitment is my translation of the Hebrew word berit and the Greek word diatheke, which means in English covenant. But covenant is such a religious term that it doesn't work because we're in a covenant. That just sounds so good. What is covenant? What's a covenant? We can't define it. So I defined covenant as a rugged commitment because of the way Yahweh loves Israel. He forms a covenant with them. And if you watch Israel's relationship with Yahweh through the pages of the Bible, you discover that this is anything but happy day every day. It is up and down. It's like Hosea where Yahweh has to woo Israel into the wilderness and seduce her into returning to love him because Israel has disobeyed. 
And Israel's relationship with Israel is in, uh, with Yahweh is anything but faithful. It's up and down. And so love is defined in the Bible if it's defined by covenant, which is God's preeminent way of engaging human beings with himself is in terms of covenant. Then love is a rugged commitment. Everybody married more than a week knows this. Everybody with children over two days, especially 13 years. When they turn 13, life becomes chaos. Everybody who has a, a, a spouse who thinks for themselves. That, is that the case in Ireland? This is that subdued response we're getting here. Come on! All right. We know that to love someone is anything but all smooth sailing. It's sometimes turbulent waters. It is sometimes hanging together because we're committed to one another, but no more than that. Right? Love is a rugged commitment. Second, love is a rugged commitment to be with someone. This is one of the preeminent words in the, in the Bible, is God's presence. It's the principle of presence, that God will be with them. And God is with Israel in covenant formation. First, I taught college students, so I got their attention with this. God is with Israel, uh, with Abraham first, smoking pot in a smoking pot. It just depends how you use that accent. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 15, Yahweh goes between cut-in-half animals. That's called rugged commitment right there. And Yahweh comes in as a smoking pot to demonstrate his presence and to say to Abraham, you can cut me in half if I do not remain faithful to my rugged commitment to you. I mean, that's a pretty powerful image. Yahweh is with Israel in a tabernacle that is mobile. Yahweh is with Israel in the temple. Yahweh is with Israel in his glory filling the Holy of Holies. Yahweh is with Israel when on Christmas we read, you shall call his name Emmanuel God with us. And Jesus calls the Holy Spirit that he will be with you as the parakletos, as the advocate in John 14 through 16. And in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3, when Yahweh has summed up all of creation, when Yahweh is the father of all through his son in the power of the spirit, it says, that Yahweh, or God, will dwell with his people. Withness. Love in the Bible is a rugged commitment to be with people. It's a principle of presence. Well, this is a challenge to anybody who wants to love anyone, is to make a a rugged commitment to be with them, to have coffee with them to walk with them, to go through life with them, to say, I'm going to be here. 
and you're going to know that I'm in your corner because my presence is going to communicate my love for you. So this is the challenge of Christianity, that Yahweh has made a commitment and has shown us what love is, that we are to make rugged commitments to other people to be with them. And it is particularly difficult to be with people we don't like to be with, right? But that's why Jesus calls us to love our enemies. He doesn't say like them and pretend like you like them. He says make a rugged commitment to someone you don't like to spend time with them. Wow, that's radical. And that's what Jesus called his people to do because he called people to love. Love is a radical, a a rugged commitment to be with. Third, it is a rugged commitment to be with as someone who is for. This is the principle of advocacy. The great line in the Bible found in Exodus 6 and goes all the way through the book of Revelation is this. The covenant formula that the God of Israel makes with Israel is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's probably the emphasis. I will be your God and you will be my people. Because it is God's elective choice to bring us into his family that we only become his people because he's chosen to make us his people. He has bec- he is I will be your God. He's become the one who draws us into himself. And this is the principle of advocacy. You can translate, I will be your God and you will be my people with this expression, I've got your back. I'm in your corner. I'll always be there as your warrior God, your defending God. And throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we see Yahweh on the side of Israel in all their battles. He wants to be on their side because he is their God. Now here's a fundamental principle about life. No one knows that you are for them until you are willing to be with them. Forness is communicated through witness. You may tell your children that you are for them But if you don't have time for them, they will not know what the principle of advocacy is. Time and time, I had college students come into my office, some of whom had parents, fathers who were pastors, who opened up their heart to me that their father never had time for them because they were too busy pastoring other people, not their family. Advocacy is learned, foreness is learned through the embodied presence of another in our life. My son was a professional baseball player. He's now a scout for the greatest baseball team in the world named the Chicago Cubs. Now, this is a joke in the United States. It's like 10 years ago, I think, cheering for Leicester City or something like that. But Leicester City... Now is the Chicago Cubs, because we have the best record in baseball. And I know, because at 4 o'clock this morning, I checked the score. We won again. Thank you for asking. 
When my son was in high school, he was playing on the baseball team, and Chris's mother, uh, Betty, and her father, Ron, always came to the games. They drove 100 miles to come watch our son play baseball games, which is fine, except sometimes it's in the spring. So sometimes it rained, and sometimes it snowed, but they were always there. And one day we played a doubleheader, which means you play a game, and then you take a 30-minute break, and then you play another game. That's baseball. It's a great game. And it was cold. And we lost both games. But my son played very well. And Chris's mother, when we sat in the living room afterwards, said, Lucas, I wish you were the only one who could bat on your team. Now, baseball is like cricket, where you have how many batters? Eleven. Everybody has to bat, right? Now, you're supposed to have that, because my analogy is going to be ruined if not everybody has to bat. (laughs) In baseball, you have to get 27 outs. So 27 different people have to come to the plate and bat. So you have a team of nine, and everybody has to bat. Well, Chris's mother said, Lucas, you're so good, I wish you were the only one who could bat for your team. I said, Betty, that's called golf. Where the only person who bats for you is, you know, you don't get to rely on anyone else. But my son knew that his grandmother loved him. He knew that, he, that she loved him because she was always there. And when she said that, we all laughed. Of course, that's not how it works. But it communicated to my son an important message. I think you are the top of the world baseball player. That's how we communicate love. We communicate it by being with people. Withness communicates foreness. Foreness is not communicated without witness. Finally, and this is where love radically differs from the modern world's perception of what love is, which has largely moved into the realm of tolerance. The fourth principle is this. Love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, for someone, unto Christ-likeness. God loves us to make us what we were meant to be. He doesn't love us and say, no matter what you're like, it's going to be fine. That's not the God of the Bible. I am holy, Yahweh says. Be holy. So we are to begin to take on the nature of God as we are formed into Christ's likeness, as Paul eloquently describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, as we are transformed by the glory of God's Spirit to take on the glory of the image of God who is Christ in us. So we are called to make a rugged commitment. Yahweh has made a commitment to us to engage us and to be with us. He communicates that He is for us, and He is for us in order to make us all we are meant to be to transform us into Christ's likeness so that we can become all that God wants us to be. So for us to love another person is to make a rugged commitment to another person, to be with them and to be for them. Now notice, we're both humans now, so that we can grow together unto Christ's likeness. Fundamental principle about love and relationships in life. You do not deserve 
and earn words of untuness until you have communicated withness and forness. If you have made a rugged commitment to someone, so much so that you are present in their life, so much so that they now know that you're in their corner and for them, you can speak words of untuness that can sharpen their lives morally and help them grow spiritually, as they also then can speak back words to you so that you too can grow in Christ-likeness. Isn't it the case that many of us would like people to clean up their lives, but we don't want to spend time with them and communicate forness? Isn't that, don't you just wish they'd clean up and change, and then we can engage one another? That's not Jesus. Jesus said to the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, join me at table. The Pharisees said, if you are clean, you can eat with me. Jesus said, eat with me, I will make you clean. That is a radical transformation. Because anyone in the presence of Jesus is going to be transformed by his dynamic presence. And so love is about the dynamic presence of God in this world. Through Christ, in the Spirit, in us, as God transforms us into Christ-likeness. I run out of time. I haven't even gotten to my second point yet. I grew up Baptist, and we didn't have clocks in our church. So you could just go as long as you wanted. But there's coffee time, and I wouldn't dare get in the way of the Irish at coffee time. So tomorrow I will pick up at this point, uh, and we will talk about the cruciform nature of God, so that God is a God of covenant love. Our king is a covenant-loving king who manifests himself through the cross, and only then do we understand the God of our kingdom.